This podcast started with a conversation. Paul Wesley and myself were talking about how many fascinating people there are in Totnes, so we decided to invite some of those people to tell their stories. Each guest nominates a friend to interview. That friend then interviews one of their friends and so on. The interviewee becomes the interviewer, making links in our Totnes chain. This is the fourth chain and we've chosen the theme of environmentalism. This third episode of the fourth chain of the Totnes Chain podcast features Rob Hopkins. Rob Hopkins is the co-founder of the Transition Network and Transition Town Totnes. He has been named as one of the independent's top 100 environmentalists and as one of the observer's top new radicals. He is a prolific author, public speaker and podcaster. His podcast is called From What If to What Next? And he is also an honorary citizen of Liège in Belgium. I don't know Johnny Rotten, but, but I'm, sure, I'm sure he puts as much blood and sweat into what he does as Sigmund Freud did. You see, what, what sounds to you like a big load of trashy old noise is in fact the brilliant music of a genius. Myself. Rob, hi. How are you? I'm grand, thank you. Lovely to do. Well, that's good. And I love the word grand. This must be. <laughs> this must be. That's, quite that's a, from my time in Ireland. Ireland. Yes. Everything's grand. Everything's grand. <laughs> so, Rob, why did you choose this piece of music? I there's something about that piece of music that that really touches me very deeply. So it's it's based on a on a recording of Iggy Pop being interviewed on some TV program in America in the mid seventies with a very very con- conservative host who's saying, "Well, what this punk rock thing isn't it? Terrible, horrible load of old noise." And he's like, "No, this is something extraordinary." And he just he just speaks from the heart in a way that I just find just so beautiful. And it's like, you don't hear that many people doing that anymore. People to be tend to be so risk averse and so like everything gets filtered through a sort of, you know, you do your media course and your training and stuff. And I just feel like for me, because the track is called Punk Rock. And for me, when I was like 13, 14, 15, punk was such a huge influence on me. And it was really the way that my generation educated itself about politics and the world and and everything. And it And it was such a huge kind of, catalyst and spark for me and to hear the way that he speaks about it with that beautiful music in the background but just with that sort of it's like it it, about how deeply it touches him when he talks about how do you ever have that feeling where like you don't feel pleasure and you don't feel pain and you're totally in the zone and and I just yeah it moves me really deeply just the way that he speaks the kind of honesty with which he speaks about how what he does kind of touches him and affects him who is he being interviewed by? Uh, I can't remember. You can on YouTube. You can find the original. It's like some nineteen seventies American right, okay. chat show host. Yeah. 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 <clears throat> uh, well, congratulations. You've chosen. You're the first person to choose a piece of music that I've never heard of. <laughs> <laughs> Hooray! <laughs> yeah. When I was asked, you know, you need to choose one piece of music that sums up your life. As someone who's spent basically since they were about twelve putting together their desert island discs list, it's yes. always very hard to narrow it down to yeah. one. So it could have been lots of different things. Um, well, this leads neatly into the fact that, in some respects, you were a child of the sixties because you were. 
born in the 60s, weren't you? I was born a month after the student riots in Paris, yeah. Oh, really? <laughs> Absolutely no connection between those two effects whatsoever. There's a serious generational <laughs> gap between you and me. Yeah, there. I know. <laughs> Great. Um, and you were you're born in London? You're, so I was you're born Londoner? in Chiswick Hospital. Chiswick? Yeah. Of course, that's near to where I was born. So, And you lived in Chiswick? No, lived near there, lived near... Like Hampton, around that sort of area. Near the Thames? Near the Thames? Near there, yeah. yeah. Near Bushy Park. Right. So what was your childhood like there? You spent how long there? Ten years Till or so? Uh, about 11 years there. Yeah. And how was that? Uh, it, was, uh, it was kind of quite unremarkable, I think, probably. Was that suburban? It was London? kind of suburbia and yeah. my mum was a homemaker and my dad was an architect and... Yeah, I don't think there's much that would sort of stand out from, from that time, really. Just, so, was, so there's no events or or environment that that you go back to and re- recall as being formative? No, not really. I, 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 I just, I guess I, I, I feel like I, w- I feel very fortunate that I had a childhood where my parents had kind of indulged me in playing and being imaginative and reading a lot and having a bedroom filled with Lego and bits and bobs. and Any siblings? I have a sister who's eight, 18 months younger than me. Um, yeah. So your father was an architect? Yeah. Nothing, not of anything of any... Like, well, after he, he passed away a few years ago and going through his portfolio of stuff that he had, it was all pretty uniformly ghastly. There's nothing that I would take anyone to say and go, ta-da, my dad designed this, isn't it beautiful? I mean, that wasn't really the time of year when architects were... The, there wasn't really the time in history when architects Rob. were asked to design beautiful things. So I think he was involved in a terminal at Heathrow Airport or something appalling like that. So, yeah. <laughs> but they were lovely people and, and it was... Yeah. So the, you ended up... Somehow, rather, to ward off um, Steiner School in I did. Bristol. How did that happen? That's very good. This is done. It's like being on. Uh, what's it called? This is your life. This is great. Yeah. No, I went to. So I after London, I went to um, lived in Wiltshire for three years near Marlborough, and because my mum and dad, that's where the family moved to, and I had terrible bullying problems in the school that I was in. So it was in Marlborough. So one end of Marlborough is like Marlborough College, which is like a very, very exclusive private school. And the other end is St John's, which is the big comprehensive, which is where I was. And uh, had terrible bullying there, particularly the last couple of years. And so at the end of the third year, I came home and said, I'm done. And luckily I had parents who didn't just say, oh, toughen up a bit and get back in there sort of thing, you know. So we looked around for what are the other options. And I had an aunt who lived in Bristol and uh, we looked at a couple of, went to look at the the, the, the the Waldorf school in Bristol and I thought yeah I could do this this would be good and so I went to basically when I was 14 I pretty much moved to Bristol and went to live at my aunt's house and it was for me it kind of it sort of saved me in lots of ways that place just to be in a school that was smaller and where it was a first name thing and it was more creative there's lots of things about Steiner and Waldorf things that I fundamentally disagree with and I remember years later 
one of our kids went to this small kind of steinery based nursery thing and there's a woman there who was a steiner teacher and uh who was like and discovered that i was actually the only parent in the whole community of the whole school who had actually been to a steiner school and she said rob 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 what would you say that being in a steiner school has done for you expecting me to say like it's given me a great deep nature connection and a love of i don't know felting or something and uh and i said uh uh it gave me a a a deep love of things done not very well but with tremendous enthusiasm which was not the answer she wanted at all but that's what it was for me it was just like it was in this amazing old it was like being a hogwarts like being like like being a hogwarts that was about five years off being demolished. It was in these sort of old pro-cathedral buildings with holes in the floor. And be like, don't go there, you'll fall through. It was a health and safety hellhole. And it was complete anarchy, but it was just glorious as well. You've related to the question I was going to ask you, what did the Waldorf schools do for you? (laughs) Because the the thing that struck me was that, and I didn't know this until I went down the rabbit hole of Google, was that you're a very talented artist. Oh, thank you very much. Well, I think you're very talented, and I've got excellent taste. <laughs> and and I, I mean, what I saw, oh, it was brilliant, I, and I, I wasn't aware of this at all. Thank you. And Waldorf doesn't seem the place to nurture t- artistic ability, because I did once say to a Waldorf teacher, why are all the paintings of the children the same? <laughs> that wasn't a good question. But, no. but when, where did this start, this, your... your artistic uh, endeavours, your artistic interest, because you must have been drawing at that sort of age and as a teenager? I think, I, I mean, I always I always loved drawing and I, I guess a little... The, the, the thing with Waldorf schools is that they have, although people imagine them as being terribly kind of free and groovy, actually they can be very dogmatic and they have this thing that actually you can't, you can't use black... You can't use a pencil or something until you're in year eight. It's like you have to just use like wet paper and splodgy paint. You can't use black yes. until it's like ridiculous. So, uh, so I don't know. I think I, I was like I said before. I kind of feel like I'm a I'm a generation who school was so dreadful that that whole kind of scene of music and punk and post punk stuff was all really a generation educating itself so if you by the time you listen to a joy division record at the end of it there was like eight or nine books you had to go off and read and there was a band called crass who were a huge kind of influence on me sort of anarchist punk band who were more like a sort of philosophy thing than a band and you would always be learning things like that so i kind of feel like i didn't really i guess i learned a little bit of art at the steiner school i guess what i learned was just the love of it really and then, and then I went, and then I did art at A level. I went to Hem, then to Hembury, which is a big comprehensive in the north of Bristol, and did uh, scraped three meagre A levels there. One of which was art, and we had a really good art teacher there, and I really enjoyed that. And then I ended up going to did foundation art at Barrashton, and I feel really fortunate to have been the last generation. I think, who, who, who went to do foundation art, and on day one they said, "You all think you can draw, and you're all shit." And we're going to teach you from scratch how to draw. So we learn all of that kind of uh, way of drawing with like angles and lines. And just we spent three or four months just sitting there drawing things. And it was really boring, but it was such a good kind of discipline that I feel really, really grateful to have had. Really? That's interesting. 
So because you don't get that anymore now, it's all like, it's all like conceptual and. Yes. <clears throat> whereas for me, art is like it's a craft. It's something that you learn, and when you look at people like I read, I was reading a book recently about Eric Revillius, who was amazing, and John Nash, like those incredible British artists in the twenties and thirties, and you read about what going to art college like to to do a degree at art school was like in the nineteen thirties. You learn all the different kinds of printing. You learn calligraphy you learnt design you learn drawing painting oils watercolor everything you know and it's not like that at all and I was sort of very much came in on the end of that I think so if this was the end of your sort of primary secondary education what does it teach you in hindsight about education because you've got children and you must think about education and you must have thought about education yeah I mean it, it definitely I feel very proud that so that all of my children have been able to get through their education without ever having to wear a school uniform yeah is a, something I feel very proud about my 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 second son was at Kevick and he was just when they introduced the uniform at Kevick which for the record was the most stupid thing that ever happened in in Totnes I think and uh, and completely pointless and that actually he just avoided that which was really good and we were quite involved in the campaign yeah. about that I think I think for me education <clears throat> Uh, the bits of education that I really liked were the bits where I felt like I mattered a bit and where where people would sit down with you and actually you were not just a number, you were not just a surname, you were a, you were something that mattered, you were, you were somebody to be worked with and supported rather than a kind of an empty vessel just to be filled up with stuff. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, uh, so all, all of my kids have had quite different sort of routes through their education, but always, I think, very much around, well, what what, what do you want to do? I never, would never force a particular approach on any of them, really. Yeah. Yeah, I'd love to have a chat with you at length and other people, too, about education, what they've learned, what their education... Because we're all experts on education. <laughs> We've all experienced it, haven't we? We've all come to different conclusions, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. it's an important subject, there. Um, I mean, I, I guess as well, it's partly with education. It's like they always say, you know, when you go to a conference, the best part of any conference is the chats over coffee and the tea break. That's always the best bit that was worth going for. And for me, the best bit about edu- the best bits about school always happen outside the classroom, uh, you know, unless you happen to have a truly extraordinary kind of visionary, amazing teacher, which I think I maybe only ever had one or two of in my life, really. Well, a lot of people have, aren't there? A lot of people who have achieved whatever will refer back to one teacher and the memory of that teacher will stay with them forever which goes to show how important it is to be a good teacher really yes i'm sure yeah i think maybe part of the the kind of deep love of art was when i was about 18 going to the van gogh museum in amsterdam oh yeah yeah which still for me is like my life's great pilgrimage site (laughs) I'm a vast kind of geek of Have, have you been stuff. back there more than once? I've been there a few times, yeah. The wonderful thing I thought about it, and I've only been once, is that they they display them chronologically. Yes. So you can... You can skip around. the first floor altogether. Just <laughs> 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 all the really boring brown stuff. <laughs> did you see some kind of psychological development or yeah. deterioration as you go through the paintings it's a visual representation of a, a mental state which i thought was yeah astonishing yeah but now i'd like to go back there again yeah it'd be lovely there's also there's another place called the otto otto low museum or something which is the second biggest collection of his paintings yeah. which is very near to amsterdam which i hadn't heard of until recently and there's loads of so that's my next trip i want to go there yeah all right i might join you do yeah <laughs> 
Um, Totnes Chain on the Road. <laughs> Roadshow. <laughs> Roadshow, yeah. You, um, I think, sort of the next stage was your decision uh, to go, or did you decide, was it decided for you, um, to go to Buddhist Institute in Italy, Tuscany. Yeah. So how did that happen? Why? And So I finished, I finished doing foundation art. I had a dream for a little while that I wanted to do fine art, and I had an interview to go to Liverpool to do fine art, which was the most awful, humiliating, ghastly hour with two lecturers who had just come back from lunch in the pub, and uh, it was just horrible. And I, I thought, mm, I maybe I don't want to do that. And so I had about a year and a half where I just was doing living in Bristol and doing different jobs, and I was sharing a flat with two guys who I got on really well with, uh, and one of them... And then there was a summer where we set each other the challenge to see who could find a way to, to, to stay out of the UK. And so we all got like interrail cards and went travelling off around Europe. And one of us managed to stay and he ended up in Tuscany in Italy living in this place, this, uh, this Buddhist community monastery place. And uh, sending all these postcards, going, oh, so beautiful, you should come, it's really nice and... Of course, I ended up backing for another year where I worked in a hang glider factory making the tails for hang gliders, imagine. Uh, and then, so the next summer came round and I thought, well, well I'm just going to go out and see Dan. I didn't have an interest particularly in Buddhism at that point. I just wanted to go and see Dan and maybe I could find a way to stay out of the UK. And I went to this place, <clears throat> this beautiful old kind of villetta up in the hills in Tuscany, just outside this village, beautiful place, really lively. And I got there and it was really nice to see Dan. And, and I thought, and I was quite, I, I wasn't interested in Buddhism. I still had that real kind of punk thing of uh, any religion is bullshit kind of thing. But I, I was quite interested in learning how to meditate. And so when I arrived there, I said, so could I stay? And the way it worked then was that if you stayed that, and you you worked like four and a half days a week or something, then that covered your board and your lodging. And I was like, oh, yeah, great. I can do this. Living in Italy with all these <clears throat> all these crazy Italians and just it was just a, such a different thing and uh so uh, it was a big place like if, if it was a hotel it would be like a 140 bed hotel this place it was a big thing operation biggest sort of center like that in italy lots of people coming so when i arrived there they said uh i said well what do you want to do they said oh well you can work with alessandro he's the house manager and uh, <clears throat> so i spent I spent like three weeks learning the ropes and how to do all the cleaning and how to do the laundry and how to do the rotors and all this kind of thing. And then after three weeks, Alessandro says, oh, I'm leaving now to go to Elba to work for the summer season. I said, oh, who takes over after you? You do. Here are the keys. So here I was like 19, fresh out of Bristol, bit lost, didn't know what I was doing. Oh, and there's a course, 100 people coming in for a yoga course on Thursday. Fuck me. Oh, my God. <clears throat> and it was really the best thing ever happened to me. It was like been given that kind of responsibility in a community that was really supportive and where I was having to learn the language and people were very helpful with that. And and all these incredible, like there was that whole generation of incredible Tibetan lamas who were the ones in 1959 when the Chinese invaded who literally just got up and walked over the mountains into India and yeah. brought that whole culture with them while the Chinese behind them were piling all those texts up in bonfires and, you know... But before the Chinese came, there were 6,000 monasteries. By the end of the Cultural Revolution, there were 13 left, you know, and they walked over. And, and so the, many of those people would come and visit, and I got to listen to them and study with them. So I was there for about two and a half years, mm. and it was a pretty 
it was it was like my kind of most other people would spend that time going to university. That was my kind of life yeah. university experience. I think. What was it impressed you about those Buddhist monks that had gone through that horrendous experience? We forget about. It. I'd forgotten about it actually, yeah. but I don't remember it at the time. It was horrendous. What What impressed you most about them? The, the. I think sometimes, you know, in, in, in Western culture, when we talk about compassion, mm. it's a word that is like, it, that we see it's kind of just about kind of being nice. Like compassion is about like, you know, you organize a cake table sale at the WI as, as a compassionate thing. Like in, in that Tibetan culture, compassion is like, they talk about it being like a, like a sort of a diamond or like a flash of lightning or almost like a, it's like a, there's an amazing book I read just before when I first went there called Shambhala by Chugam Trumpa who was a lama who came to the west who was a very quite outrageous controversial character but the book was extraordinary and uh, it was that that I they, they, they have this concept of the bodhisattva ethic which is that idea that you live a life of kind of compassion and service and and it, and that really really kind of affected what I did from then on really it was like that that idea of compassion as a kind of a superpower as a sort of like an elemental force and when you meet people like the Dalai Lama or some of those people who were teachers coming through then you could you could sort of feel the compassion the power of it enter the room almost before they arrived somehow they were quite extraordinary beings what's the relationship between <clears throat> compassion and empathy very strong ability to be empathetic so i think i think empathy is that ability to kind of walk in somebody else's yes. shoes and compassion in the sort of tibetan buddhist context is that is that uh deep desire for all beings to be freed from their suffering so it's a it's a and so in in other forms of buddhism it's like you just the idea is you just get enlightened and then you kind of bob off to the sort of enlightened place. Yes. Whereas actually in Tibetan Buddhism, it's like, no, you can't do that until everybody else comes too. Right. So you, it's not acceptable to just sort of do that and then skip off. It's like you, you, you commit to staying for all time to help liberate everybody else, which is kind of go, is much, much deeper kind of idea than empathy for me. So there's that sense of deep commitment to engagement that was important for you or became important for you yeah it was that idea that 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 you you live your life in a way that serves is a service to what is going on you know you live in a world where you can't turn your back on the suffering of other people i guess yeah. basically it was a very important notion at that point so after that time that, that was a sounds like a really crucial period although you didn't, you didn't set out to be crucial you didn't go no it was kind of accidental really no, accidental. like a lot of what we're going to talk about is entirely accidental sometimes people always assume there's some great master plan behind <laughs> where we end up but it's yeah. not like that yeah chance and fate etc so um what happened when you left there you went did you go you went traveling yeah i went to I, i'd saved up just about enough money to buy a ticket to go to india and i went to uh, visit so Bodhgaya where the Buddha got enlightened under the tree and Dharamsala where the Tibetan community in exile is and so I spent about six months there uh, which was amazing and and I but I had this dream that I wanted to go to Mount Kailash in Tibet 
which is like this of the world's great holy mountain to Hindus and, and to Buddhists as well. It's like this amazing naturally pyramid-shaped mountain. Mm. And, uh, but Tibet at that time was completely closed to, to Westerners because people had got in. So the year before, there'd been a couple of years where people could get in and then there'd been riots in Lhasa and they'd basically shut it all down. So I travelled with a friend of mine up through Pakistan over into Kashgar, which you can't go to now because it's all part of the Uyghur place so visiting those Uyghur communities before that were all happened what's happening now and then we and then we hid on lorries to try and get down into Tibet and we got about 10 miles north of Lhasa and then we got arrested <laughs> by the Chinese police and then quite unceremoniously booted out of uh, out of Tibet again but I have been quite far into Tibet but just hiding in the back of a truck so it's not really a particular adventure so we didn't actually get anywhere near Mount Kailash sadly but then we went down to Hong Kong and then back to India and then and then that was where I met my wife was Emma was we was I I literally was just on my I got to Delhi and my plan was I was going to go back to Italy and I just bumped into somebody imagine in the city the size of Delhi I just bumped into in the street somebody who I'd met when I was there before who said oh you know there's something happening up in Dharamsala the next couple of days the Dalai Lama's te- doing some teaching or something and I thought oh oh maybe I'll change my ticket and I'll just pop up there for a week or so. And then when I got there, I met my old friend, a friend, a woman called Katie, who I knew because she had been the girlfriend of Dan, who was the guy who had introduced me to going to Pomai, who we'd shared this flat with back in Bristol. And Katie was travelling with this rather shy uh, young woman called Emma. And about a week later, she moved into where I was staying and uh, she's been there ever since. <laughs> Wonderful. That's, that's, uh, it's, that's the stories of where you first met. They're lovely. After the sort of naive foolhardiness of trying to get into Tibet. <laughs> <laughs> it was quite an adventure. You were lucky to be thrown out if they'd have kept you. It could have been a lot worse. <laughs> yeah. So so you met Emma. Uh, where was this? Not in Delhi, but somewhere. No, in Dharamsala, in, Dharamsala. in the mountains, yeah. Mm. And so did you travel together then after that? And, and did you see, curious... Um, I'm curious, did you perceive yourself, was your self-image then, of being like a, a Buddhist acolyte or were you just a hippie traveller or what were you then or how did you see yourself? You just... I saw myself as a, as a, kind of as an, an, an artist and a student of Buddhism. Yeah, that was pretty oh, bad. Sort of really. rolled into one. Sort of, of yeah. rolled into one. And yeah. a traveller. And the travel, yeah, I enjoy yes. travelling. Although, although by that stage I was getting a bit tired of it. Yeah. I've been doing it, it was quite hard, like travelling up all through Pakistan and I hadn't been that well. And then travelling through China. China, at that, I don't know how it is now, but at that time it was a pretty brutal place to travel. It was like, it was, it was quite a salutary, it was my first experience as a kind of privileged white Western man of, of experiencing quite visceral racism from from people which i think is a good thing for us to experience really. directed towards you yeah in china oh, yeah because oh, in a lot of places that we'd be, be the first kind of uh, non-chinese people people had person people had seen you know and the, the, by far the hair people would come up and like sort of like yes. couldn't quite believe how hairy we were and quite how enormous and people would be like i remember going to try and buy a train ticket in the station and i spent the morning trying to perfect i'd say a, a single ticket to canton please at the train station queued for like an, an hour and a half to get to the front of the queue and, and said this and the woman just said may like no what do you mean no no, I'm not selling you a ticket. I don't. I don't. I don't have to. I don't want to sell you a ticket. 
And it was a lot of those things. It was only the fact that I was, I'm like six foot two and a half, and you kind of extend yourself to your full height and block the whole counter. And then she just would give you the tickets, like, here's your tickets, clear off, you know. <laughs> so yeah, so by so by then I was I was kind of done. So I met Emma. She was just at the beginning of her travels, and I was kind of at the end of mine. So we had about a month together, and then I came back to England. And then would she come back? Would she not? I don't know, but she did, and that was very nice. I'm glad that she did. Yes, okay. <laughs> but you are. So what then? You came back to to England, or we? What? We came back to Bristol. Well, we went back to Bristol, and we had kind of a year and a bit of doing jobs and then we this is Emma just, yeah, we had our yes, first we had a little bed sit in Bristol yeah. and then uh our first child um was uh, conceived and I thought oh shit okay well ma- no I don't mean shit about that I meant well <laughs> I mean well I did slightly at the beginning because we were like 23 or something we were quite young at this point yeah. and uh we're like, okay, I probably need to go to college or something because mm. I don't. I need to be able to. So, so that was when I went to university at twenty four, because I thought, okay, I need to up my game a little bit here, and I found. And luckily, at that time in Bristol, there was the very first. So just before then, I'd found out about permaculture, and I'd when I was in Pakistan, I travelled with this Australian guy who was very into permaculture, who just talked about permaculture all the time, and I didn't know what he was talking about. But every time we'd arrive in a village with apricot trees, he'd get terribly excited and start writing little articles for the newspaper, for the for the n- newsletter of his permaculture association back in Queensland somewhere or other. And then when I got back to England, somebody gave me a copy of Bill Mollison's Permaculture Designer's Manual, the kind of the Bible of permaculture at that point. Great big book. He said, I think you might enjoy this. And uh, and it kind of blew my mind, really. It had this concept of earth repair in it, this idea that here's a manual to put it all back together again. Mm -hmm. Okay, this is really important. So So I'd done my permaculture course before I started my degree. But the degree was one of the very, very first kind of sustainability degrees that existed at that time. Yeah. So at the University of the West of England, it was called Environmental Quality and Resource Management. Yeah. And it was uh, this incredible uh, sort of, it it mined this seam of mature students, because I had such rubbish A-levels. I was like, I thought I'd never get into university anyway. And I applied for it and I got in. There was lots of people, about a third of the course was mature students who had just been waiting for a course like that to come along. And so, you know, most of the 18-year-olds who did it were all sort of in the bar half the day and sort of sleeping at the back. But the front three rows was all of us who were like, this is what we want and we've been waiting for this and we're going to get everything we can out of this. So it was uh, it was... It was great because it, it 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 gave me a kind of a belief that that I could express ideas and I could communicate things and I could read and study and understand things. So that was that was really important. As how well. how <coughs> academic was that? Yeah, I mean, it sounds very academic as you describe the title of the course, but they often do. Is it very academic? statistics led or whatever how was it it was a very modular course it was quite an interesting it was quite interesting so if your interest was really like in nature conservation you could you could choose the modules through it that were about nature conservation if they was more about philosophy and politics there was a route if it was about engineering there was a route Mm -hmm. so so you could you could very much find i mean it was a bsc so there was there was there was a scientific underpinning to it all but it was you know you could choose a way through it that that matched what your interests were 
So, so the university was it University of West of England, yes. Yeah. So that was a, quite a leader at that time. Although, what year are we talking about? Ninety-three to ninety-six. Ninety-three. Yeah, there had been environmental movements around for quite a time, and yeah, before that. Yeah, but there wasn't. There was because uh, uh, so ninety-two was the year when the. The, the concept of sustainable development was first coined at the at the Earth Summit in Rio, right. and so this was one of the very first degrees that kind of came out as a response to that. Yeah. But of course, I mean, for me, like it was that one of the things that I learned there really was the fact that you know a lot of people who who when they're doing a degree, it's like. They, you know, they go to the bar, they roll in late and then they'll spend the day in the bar and then they cram their essays at the last minute and they're up till three in the morning on coffee tablets to kind of finish the thing. Like I had a, a that, so when I started the degree, I had a th- three-month-old uh, child and then my second son, Finn, was born uh, a month before my finals. So it's like I had to, for me, it was like I really had to learn that thing of I've got nine till five, and that's my study time. I'm not going to get to do anything in the evening because when I get home, I'm in childcare child and family mode. So, so it gave me an ability to, I think, to, to really work under all kinds of different circumstances and to just, this is my hour. I need to do the most I can in this hour, you know. But then we move into, i got to, I got to just use this term because I like the wilderness years. <laughs> <laughs> We're t- talk- I'm talking about a decade in Ireland. Yeah. Which isn't a wilderness at all. Um, <laughs> Bits of it. It just sounds good. Um, so why why did you move to Ireland straight after this degree? Or? Straight after, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, and, yeah. And why was that then? I mean, the... So we'd, so when, when me and Emma got together, we were sort of, well, what do we want to do? Like, what's our, what's our um, kind of life project that we would like to do with each other and it was that we wanted to be part of creating some sort of um sustainable community sort of a project you know we'd like to build something and you know reading all these permaculture books with these amazing sort of houses and landscapes and thinking yeah we would like to do that so in the last year that I when I was doing the degree I did the my dissertation was all about permaculture and planning so at that point there were maybe three or four sort of precedents nationally like Tinker's Bubble and Hockerton and a couple of places where they had used sustainability and permaculture as an argument to get planning permission in a context where otherwise they wouldn't have got it and so that was when I did my that was what I did my dissertation about and it was quite kind of groundbreaking at the time it was so when I finished it I had some copies published and sold quite a lot of it and it was quite useful to people who were trying to figure out how to do that but the reason I did it was because that was what we wanted to do so by the end of doing that research the conclusion was maybe it would be easier to do it in Ireland because the planning the the land was there was more land available and I think the planning system what we thought the planning system was more kind of accommodating and more kind of flexible. Emma's mum and her husband lived there, and we'd been over to see them a few times, and we'd met people that we liked there. This is in the southwest. In the southwest, yeah. Is that where John Seymour ended up? No, he ended up in in Wexford in the southeast. Oh, Wexford, all right. Yeah, last time I ever saw John Seymour was in a 
nightclub in Dublin. Oh, great. It was very surreal. And he'd had a, he was a few pints in and he was kind of propping the wall up and there was a Beatles covers band all dressed like in sort of uh, the sort of the, the, the early Beatles kind of suits on the stage. And it was like, this is a quite a surreal moment. Yes. <laughs> you know, John Seymour. Um, yeah, so we moved there and uh, with our young, we had sort of two young children at that point and moved to this rented farmhouse on the north side of a hill about three miles outside Skibbereen, which was the coldest house I've ever lived in. <laughs> and in wettest, my, I should life. Think. And the wettest. Yeah. And when we got there, the first few months was a bit like, oh, we miss all of our friends and what are we doing? Uh, and then, uh, and yeah, and then actually one of the things interesting is that the very first job that I had when I moved there was um, Jackie Hodgson, who who was then became the mayor of Totnes and is mm. now involved in politics here. She lived there at the time, and she gave me my first job doing a sort of environmental stuff. And if oh, it's got that lovely connection, not a lot of people know that. Mm. Uh, and yeah, and then we were, and then so we spent about three or four years looking for land to do this eco village project with this with a German family that we had met who had a similar kind of vision and a dream, and and then we found we found this place, this beautiful farm that was called the Hollies and uh, it was when Emma was pregnant with Arlo who was our third child and we went for auction one of the most terrifying things buying land in an auction and we went along to this auction for this land we've been looking we were like this is the place we've been looking for ages this is definitely the place we're going to do and we asked this guy we knew who was an auctioneer if he would bid for us because we were like what do we know about bidding in an auction in, in Ireland and uh, Emma was like out here, could have, could have given birth at any minute. And we went into this auction and uh, the bidding started to go up. And the guy who was bidding for us didn't even move, hadn't done anything at all. started going up in tens, then it started going up in fives. And when it started going up in twos, then he came in and he started bidding. It was brilliant, kind of tactic. And I was like, who's this guy? God, he must be bidding for people who've just got loads and loads of money. And, uh, and, and, then, and then at the moment when the guy went going, going, gone, sold it's like i've never seen my skin that color before it was like recycled paper yes it was like this sort of and a friend of mine a friend of mine turned around and said uh oh i i'm so sorry i know you really wanted that place and we said that's us <laughs> and then we had this whole long thing of designing it and and then trying to get how, planning sorry, permission. How, um, just paint a picture how how much land was this was it just it wasn't just a piece of land there's a building as well it was about 50 six acres oh, and it was and it was this farmhouse that was like in a pretty derelict kind yeah. of state and lots of outbuildings yeah but it was just you know you said the wilderness years when we first got there it was there were it was bits of it were just a beautiful kind of wilderness yeah and it was uh, that was very much at the time where any conventional farmer who bought it would have just been in there all the hedges out improve in inverted commas the pasture drain everything and uh, actually, and you can still go there now, and it's just a beautiful, beautiful place. Yeah. So, what had it been? What kind of farm had it been? It was like every farm around there. It, oh, it, it was a dairy farm. Dairy, oh dairy. Because yeah. I was that was that's it. That I I noted somewhere, and I wrote it down because my Irish isn't great. But Balia Dura Tarantara. What does that mean? So Balia Dura. So we 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 needed to set oh. up a kind of a vehicle in order to. We needed an organisation to do it. Yeah. So Bolyadulra means like, Bolya means, like a lot of Irish place names start it's with Bolya, it's like yes. place, the place yes. of. And Dulra means nature. And Tioranta, I think, means like limited. So it was a company that we set up. It was like a charity that we set up. Very naive. We were so naive, honestly. 
we were so young and st- young and really and like even now like because in, in in Ireland all the legal models that that, that like here that if you wanted to create a kind of intentional community eco village type thing there's all sorts of interesting different legal models you can use about the ownership and this bit's owned in common and this bit is whatever in Ireland it's basically freehold and that's it because all of the associations with land rents and ground rents that they inherited from British colonialism meant that actually now it's like it's just it's just uh, you own it freehold that's it mm-hmm. so we were trying to do something in a in a legal system that just wasn't really up for it particularly and uh yeah so actually the that they're still now dealing with some of the challenges from the legal models that we set up and the fact that we made it as a charity made things very complicated but but we had this incredible it was a beautiful place and we moved there and we built just a little wooden house that we lived in kind of without planning just because we needed to live somewhere which is still there, and there's still people living, and it's beautiful. And then we we started running a whole program of courses there every year. At the same time as I had also, in the college in Kinsale up the road, I'd started running a full-time permaculture course there, which which is the, was the first full-time permaculture course run in a college anywhere, and which is still running. I just recently attended the 21st anniversary celebrations of the course. It made me feel very, very old. Uh, but that that is so 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 I was teaching permaculture in the college and in the place where we lived we were running courses particularly focused around natural building because we wanted to build these buildings as a showcase of what you can build with with more local more natural materials. Which was what what was the natural? Material? So we built what well, we built our house using cob, cob right. which uh, which nobody had built a new cob building in Ireland for at least a hundred years. Nobody could remember how to do it. Mm-hmm. It had kind of historical connotations with sort of mud huts and sort of there was that sort of thing but um we just have fallen in love with the kind of renaissance of the of cob building which was coming out of the u.s at that time people because at that time ireland was sprouting up bunker what i call bungaloids massive horrific all over the place because they're getting loads of money from europe and that's how they were spending it. Well, there was a book called Bungalow Bliss that you could buy in every newsagent that was like a pattern book for bungalows. Really? So you could just say to a builder, I'll have a number 38 with arches, please. Oh. And they could just go off and build it for you. And that book did more damage to particularly up the west coast of Ireland yes. than I think anything else. And yes. very la- very sort of lax planning. But so, yeah, so 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 we, we, we started building cob houses. We had amazing people who came and taught us how to do it. And uh, we and we had like lots and lots of volunt- people who came as woofers and volunteers and were involved in helping to build these cob buildings. It was a beautiful, really quite, uh, yeah, magical kind of time to be involved in in projects like that and really learning about those materials. And any time there were things we didn't know, we would just organise a course on it and bring someone who would come in to teach it. So lime work, clay plasters, hemp lime plaster, all that sort of stuff building these beautiful, very curvy buildings. Yeah, it was lovely. That's exciting, but um, hard work. Just hard work, but yeah, like when, I I think that, you know, when you're young and you've got young kids, you just seem to have this inexhaustible energy. Well, you use child labour, is that what you're saying? (laughs) (laughs) Well, then loads of people would come as volunteers to to work on it, and and that was... uh, And did your children go to local schools? They went to uh, well, we kind of homeschooled a fair bit, mm. and they were, and then there was like sort of homeschooling communities type things that were happening at that time. They were still mostly pretty young at that point. Before we leave Ireland, did you learn anything about British colonialism while you were there? I learnt that 
my education system had left me incredibly ill-equipped and that when I arrived there I knew very little about mm-hmm. it and and I had to get up to speed really quickly and so you can't live in West Cork without getting up to speed very quickly on Irish history and British colonialism and you can't particularly where we lived because we lived about a quarter of a mile from where Michael Collins was assassinated a place called Bear and the Blah was just near where we were and uh, you know the famine West Cork was the place where the famine was, yeah, was kind of at its worst so in Skibbereen the sort of the mass graves in Skibbereen and where we where we lived was it was a region where the black and tans were particularly kind of active in the 1910s I guess it was so yeah I um I learned a lot about about that yeah yeah you have to very quickly don't you? you have to very quickly and and actually it's extraordinary that I would get through my entire education without learning anything about the Irish famine mm. uh, and without British colonial rule I, I would hope it's different now but I, I don't knew, think I, so I don't think so I, no. I knew a lot about Henry VIII and what happened to his various unfortunate uh wives I don't I didn't learn anything about that at all yeah, I'll just mention my particular grievance, which is I don't think anybody in England knows anything about Northern Ireland. No. The history of and why it is like it is at the moment. No. But there you go. Let's leave Ireland. <laughs> Before we go down that down that path. Um, did you, where did you go from there? Did you come straight to Tottenham? Oh, well, I should tell you part of the story about why we ended up leaving Ireland. Yes. So, so, so we you were... You run out of Well, kind of. So, 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 we, were, so we were doing... Um, so we were doing this project and, and we had got we tried to get planning permission to do this a kind of a bigger eco village thing mm. which hadn't come off and we ended up with a permission for a smaller thing and we were and so there had been some some of the some of our neighbors were kind of a bit hostile about it a lot of them were very excited about it and were very positive and some people were a bit like just didn't get it at all. I mean, we we were like sort of twenty years ahead of our time, really. You know, we were mm. sort of talking about the need for building ecological buildings. Mm. It was like, what are you talking about? Mm. And um, so the house that we were building, which had about one hundred and fifty volunteers, worked on it during the time it was built, which was cob and l- local timber and beautiful building. That when it was about six months off being finished, there was um, an arson attack on it in the middle of the night. And the whole thing burnt to the ground. And we had no insurance on it because you can't get insurance in Ireland for anything that's not built with concrete blocks. So it was this very, very traumatic um, experience. And uh, we had about six or seven months of just being completely adrift and at sea and what are we going to do and what happens next. And... uh, um, yeah. Well, so so lots of questions there. One, one, presumably there was nobody living in it at the time. It was no, it was uh, still a building site. We, we we had just put on all the windows. And did you, when you were constructing it, were you aware of your, um, of your father's influence, architectural background, uh, creating the building? He came over a few times, and I think he was. I don't think he ever built actually built anything. I think he was quite impressed at our just sort of determination to just sort of get on with it and start things yeah uh yeah and did you ever find out they whoever did anybody ever find out who did it and why did it no there was a there was a the police so the guardy kind of investigated it a bit yeah but when we when we actually finally left 
and we were all packed up and heading off to move here. We went to visit the police. The, we went to visit the the, the guard guy at the at, at the guard station and uh, told him we were leaving. And his his final word was, "Well, now, you were very different." <laughs> it's like, all right, oh, cheers, thanks. Okay, well, that's that explains that then. Really? Yes. Yeah. So no, there was they never found who it was. But actually, no, the, the the thing that was most extraordinary about it for me was that you know it took one or two people to do that action but then actually what happened afterwards because it was it was quite a high profile house like it had appeared in the the irish times sunday magazine it was quite like ireland's most ecological house it was quite a quite a story around the country and then for that to happen there was this amazing uh kind of um what would you call it like a like a whole group of people who were who were who were irish people who were so horrified that that was still considered acceptable in Ireland to burn somebody out of their house that actually there was this incredible um, fundraiser that then kicked in and people organised like pub quizzes and uh, we would get just get a check in the post from like an order of nuns in Carlo for five thousand euros. Then we'd get letters from kids who who had organised a five-a-side football match in their garden and charged their friends five euros to pay, and they put it in a little envelope and send it to us. Gosh, yeah. It was this extraordinary. So actually, you know, when now when I look back, what do I do? I take away from it the kind of the trauma and how horrible that was. Actually, what I take away is. That most people kindness of strangers, the kindness of strangers, yes. you know, people organised yeah. like there were dances and pub quizzes, like I say, and all sorts of stuff, and they raised about fifty something thousand euros. Wow. That was then what we were able to sort of come here with, because, like I say, we had just lost everything kind of overnight. That's wonderful. That's a lovely codicil to the story. Huh? Yeah, I mean, it just rings a bell with me because in in Wales, where I was living for ten years, same amount of time actually. There were a few cottages being burnt there. Yeah. Second homes, I think. That was the issue there, <clears throat> not not residents. But there is an issue and a problem of middle-class English, of which you and I would both be counted, um, moving into Celtic fringes. Yeah, know, although... With the, the history, thing, with the health yeah, history. Yeah, no, absolutely there fringes. is, absolutely. And, and, and I think, you know, there were definitely ways in which we were quite naive. Like I said, we were kind of young and young and stupid, really. But I think... What's really interesting to me is that although although we um you know the, 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 there was something about what we were doing that that was somehow considered so outrageous and alien to some people that that was considered a, an appropriate response. Yeah. Actually now 20 years later those ideas are all kind of completely mainstream ideas and now you have all the like the magazines in ireland about building ecological buildings and sustainable i mean ireland's unrecognizable now from the island when we first went there the idea when we first moved there that it would ever legalize same-sex marriage or abortion was like you're having you're joking and uh recently the place that we started which is still running which is called the hollies uh, Centre for Practical Sustainability and they still run lots of courses and workshops and there's more people living there now and it's being really successful was that the, they have a thing in Ireland called ty- Tidy Towns 
Tidy Towns is like a thing that happens all over Ireland. Every town wants to win Tidy Towns. And, uh, you know, you have hanging baskets out and you tidy everything up and then the judges come around and you win, win a prize. About five years ago, they added to the criteria that you could get points for stuff around biodiversity. So if you put insect hotels in, if you do a wildflower margins, if you yes. put in, then you get extra points. So all of a sudden it was like, uh, sort of conservative kind of rural Irish towns went just mental for biodiversity and adding in biodiversity yes. is really, really smart. Which and doesn't look so tidy sometimes. Which doesn't look so tidy, yes, exactly. Yes. And so um, so in Enniskeen, which was the village nearest to where we were living, where a lot of people had been like these crazy people doing all this crazy stuff, they that they created a mosaic about biodiversity and then they had to unveil this, do like a formal opening of it. And who are we going to get to open it? And they asked Thomas, who was the guy that we founded that place with, to come in as the kind of local expert on biodiversity to come in and do that, you know. So it's kind of interesting. It's like, you know, a lot of what I feel like I've done and still now, and it kind of gets tiring and exhausting and that definitely can take a toll sometimes is that when you're in that kind of pioneer thing of always being about 10 years ahead of everybody else, yes. it's like you know that the people who come after you about 10, 20 years later are going to have it a lot easier <laughs> than you are. You know, them. Because things <laughs> things change, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. But that's, that's good work that you did there, obviously, in terms of long-term benefits. What decided you to come to Totnes? Yeah, I was, I was telling Georgina this story the other day. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm sure as a child I must have passed through Totnes on a holiday because we used to go down to East Portsmouth sometimes for, for on family holidays, and uh, I, and I'd been maybe once before, but I didn't really know it very well. All I knew about Totnes was where Schumacher College was was near there. I didn't know much else about it. So when I was teaching at this college, I was running this permaculture course in Kinsale at the college. And um, I, in the last, I used to drive in every day with my friend Belinda, who taught the drama course. There was a drama course, an art course, a sculpture course, a permaculture course, and uh, I th and she she had just got back from visiting the Globe Theatre in London, and she was saying, "Oh, I'd love to. Well, I, my dream would be to have something like the Globe in the grounds of the college, like yeah. as if like that's never going to happen, but that's my dream." I was like, "Well, maybe we could do that, because on my course." That I taught, we did a lot of natural building stuff, you know. Maybe we could build you a, a theatre. So we had this amazing guy at the time who was the principal at the college, who was this guy called John Thulier, who was a very visionary, forward-looking, sort of educational pioneer in, in, in a very kind of conventional adult education context. And I literally, and I only really appreciated how extraordinary this was when we moved back to the UK and how more tightly controlled everything. I literally went to see him with a sketch on the back, literally of an envelope. And I said, John, can we, build, can we knock down the bike sheds and build a theatre? And he said, grand. And at that point, like his, 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 his approach to management was, it was brilliant. If the last thing you did worked, yes. then, then you'd probably be able to carry off the next thing. And by that stage, I'd been teaching there for a couple of years. So he's like, oh, Rob can probably, that'll probably be all right. So he just said, grand. So we all went out, the students pulled down the bike sheds, ordered some stone and started building this thing. And it was cob and straw and cordwood, which is where you build with logs on the end and then round wood poles and stuff in the roof. It's a beautiful thing. You can still go and see it. They call it the Wooden O Theatre and they put a play on in it every year. And um, uh, But I had, when it was two-thirds built, 
I was thinking all the time, how can we make this so that people from all the different courses can have a role to play in it? And I thought, wouldn't it be nice? I was reading some book and I saw, you know, about gargoyles. I thought we could ask the sculpture course all to make gargoyles around the thing, uh, around the roof. And someone said, oh, you should go to Totnes. Mary, St Mary's Church, amazing gargoyles, some of the best gargoyles in the country. So I came over to the UK with a friend of mine's camera and I spent a day or two here just going around taking pictures of all the gargoyles around the church so I could take them back and show them to the students in Kinsale. And while I was there in Totnes in that time, I just thought, because we'd been living in Ireland, right, for 10 years, like in a little wooden shed in the middle of a field. And we'd sort of flounced out of the UK with this great disgust of like, we're never coming back. Mm-hmm. And it was like the idea of moving back to England was like, oh, God, really? And Tonis was the first place I'd been to. Where I thought, yeah, this is nice. And I re- the thing that I really liked was having been considered the sort of wild hippie freak guy who is so kind of dangerous and bonkers that you have to burn the house down. Coming to Totnes, I was like, I'm one of the normalest people here. This is great. I love I'm not called Rainbow or Oak or something. And, you know, I, and, and I, just, I just loved it. I thought, oh, God, I could just be the normal person here. That would be so nice. And you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and then, so we packed up this van and, and came and moved here, yeah. Drawn by gargoyles, I like Drawn that. by gargoyles. The gargoyles yes. beckoned us. Yes, yeah. wonderful. <clears throat> and, I, and, and I think it's been like, and, this, I, and I sort of felt like everything, I kind of felt like I just fell in love with Totnes, really. Yeah. And that everything that I've done here has been an expression of that, has been a kind of a, a love. I feel like all my work in Totnes has been a sort of an extended love poem to Totnes somehow. I'm going to skip over all your work in Totnes because it's abundantly... <laughs> Google it, Google it. Yeah, Google it. And <laughs> it's, it's abundantly recorded and you've recorded, you do podcasts, you've written books, you've got degrees here, there and everywhere you've done. Have you done Desert Island Discs yet? No. No. You want, <laughs> still waiting want to, for the call. Still waiting for the call. <laughs> if anybody's listening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> one record um, was not enough for Rob. He'd like, no, 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 no. Is it eight records? It's eight records, yeah. There you go. But you've thought it through since you were... Oh, oh regularly, yeah. Yeah, OK. So you're all ready to go. Desert Island. <laughs> yeah, just, just call me. Call yeah, me. OK. Um, Totnes today. Let's finish on that. Yes. How do you see Totnes today? What's your, what's your thoughts, feelings? I mean, you talk about plans, if you like, but I mean, how do you see Totnes today? Because it's changed in the time you've been here. I, I it's changed think. a lot in the time yeah. I've been here, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I, I feel like it's always played a really, really important role along with maybe five or six other places in the UK like Hebden Bridge and Stroud and places as being kind of laboratory towns. Like they're places that are more tolerant and trusting and that have allowed people to try things out. And sometimes those things work and sometimes they don't. And if they don't, it's no great loss to anybody, but sometimes they do and those ideas spread all over the place. You know, Guy Watson creating the first vegetable box scheme here, that idea is spread to many places. You know, the Totnes Pound, which we had for 10 years, doesn't exist anymore, but you go to France now, there's 82 local currencies across France inspired by what we did here with the Totnes Pound. Many things that have come through transition and other things have have spread around. And I, and I think that that tolerance and that kind of trusting culture has been one of the things I've loved most about it and I and I, and I 
feel like during that time of COVID and and that the sort of social media, the world that we live in, has has impacted that a bit. I feel like maybe people feel a bit more reluctant to take risks than we were in 2006 when we just sort of jumped in with both feet and said... I remember we had this group from France who came over of, like, people from local government who had come on a, on a transition tour to, Fran- to, to Totnes. And they said, so when you started Transition Town, how, how did you get the permission of all the local authorities to, to name Totnes as a transition town? I said, we didn't. We just said... We just had that kind of audacious, the audacity to go, it's a transition town. And, you know, and it's like, it's an aspiration. It's not a statement of fact. It's kind of an aspiration. And I think that in some ways people are, are kind of more wary now of, of being really bold somehow, maybe because of so, cause people just get torn apart on Facebook, which wasn't really a thing that happened so much then. I mean, it's part of the reason why I still put so much energy into Atmos, because Atmos Totnes, I think, is is the most ambitious and important manifestation of all of that stuff. It's a real statement of intent as a town that everything... I've been involved with that for 14 years because because it's because it's it would represent this town upping its game and its and its kind of uh intention on a scale that would really have an impact uh, all over the place i mean i still i yeah i mean i still love it and i can't imagine living anywhere else and it's every time the th- one of the things that i really miss is the fact that you can't open the windows on the trains anymore I used to love when you come back on a summer evening and you get the train back into Totnes and you could pull the window down just as it comes round the bend and you start to see the town and you can smell the air on that bit. And I always just felt like I was just coming home to a place that I really, really loved. And and I and I feel like we we you know, that that's the thing that I always have held on to. I've kind of felt like I've just been going all the work that I do is being an ambassador going around talking about darkness and 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 it's and its potential and its possibility and it's um you know i i mentioned before you know one of the things i loved about teaching at that college was that there was a, a principal who said everything you ideas you would bring would say grand grand great have a go you know and i kind of feel like that's mostly been my relationship with with Totnes you know it is a place where you can try stuff out and you can do things and that's a really precious thing because there's not that many places where that is the case um yeah and I feel really I feel really grateful that my my kids were able to grow up here I remember Finn my second son when he was at Kevick you know you could take Finn to to Paris you could take him to the south of France you could take him to all different places and he'd say you'd say what do you think of it Finn that's not as good as Totnes. Because he could come out of school and they could jump straight in the river yes. and they could go to the woods and they could go to the beach and they could go to the moors. And he was like, why would you want to be anywhere else, really? So, yeah. So Totnes has embraced you and you've embraced Totnes. I think that's a good note to finish on. Thank yeah. you, Rob. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>